this is Opinionated and this is live from Consensus in Austin, Texas. And this is about as much fun you can have covering cryptocurrency and blockchain. We are here in the Expo Hall area of the conference and it's in the special Coindesk podcast uh, booth, which is very, very, very exciting. And we have some, some good guests today. So Danny Nelson is here, our regular contributor, uh, regular co-host. And it's actually his birthday, so uh, I'm very pleased <laughs> that you would take time out of your celebrations to be with us in, on this stage. Of very, course, this yeah. is this is actually it's true. This is the only job, part of this job that I like, so Good. I'm happy to be here. <laughs> uh, I appreciate your honesty, and we're also joined by a an alumni of um, of CoinDesk, uh, the, the one and only Adam Levine, who used to be actually podcast editor at uh, CoinDesk, and now is uh, joining us for a one time only appearance or. Oh, Ben, I'll come back anytime you oh, need Oh, good, me. good, good. Anytime you need well, me. Uh, Joel at Madison we, Square Garden. You'll yeah. never leave. <laughs> exactly. We miss your laconic tones uh, <laughs> over the airways. So um, we're just going to do a little bit of um, recapping of what we've been doing here at the uh, mega, mega fest that we call Consensus. There are 17,000 people here. There are 550 speakers and many, many stages and much, much uh, delight and enjoyment uh, for all here. So, Danny, uh, what has been a highlight for you so far? Well, I'm just happy that I have a voice right now because having to scream here, there, and everywhere really has taken a toll on my vocal cords. I've been fascinated to see this conference relative to all the other ones that I've been to, like Bitcoin Miami, ETH Denver, Breakpoint for Solana. They're, they all have a different vibe to them. And this one really is different in its big tent appeal, I'd say. There isn't so much of a retail rah-rah spirit that I saw at the Bitcoin Miami. There's certainly not the, well, I'm, I'm currently very smelly because I just went biking, but there's not a smelly developer um, packed in, developer scene packed in. You are quite smelly, actually. Thank you. I appreciate it. Um, I speak the truth. There's not a lot of developers packed in. Um, it's not a bunch of VCs patting themselves on the back, which is what the vibe in Lisbon was. It's all, it's all of the above all together. So that's really been an interesting contrast for me to see. Yeah, it's really the only event uh, in crypto that really brings together all the tribes and, and does all the things. And you have the cultural conversation, the money conversation, and all the other conversations that we know and love. Are there any panels that you've done either as, as a moderator or otherwise that stand out to you? Yeah, I, I had a lot of fun in my very first panel actually on institutional uh, crypto. I spoke with the head of risk for Binance with uh, a venture partner at Two Sigma and with uh, the CEO of a market maker. And we talked about all the different you know, trends happening right now and how they evaluate risk in a time where the market's going down and sideways. And it's not going to be this euphoric up only mentality that we have seen for the past few years. We're going into a bear market and it's, there's going to be a lot of pain but they are very much in the mindset that it's, it's a bit of a trope at this point, but it's time to build. So I'm excited to God, see. God, how many times how have I heard that, that recently? I know, right? <laughs> I'm just excited to see if they're right or not. I kind of hope they're not because I, I like chaos, but that's just me. Okay, Adam? I mean, it's a cliche, but it actually is true, right? Like, the sector just gets so hot when the prices are going up. And again, like this has happened throughout kind of the, the life cycle of cryptocurrency is, you know, you get these beaconing moments and then it draws in lots of people. But the types of people who are attracted during those times, again, like in this hunt for global yield that we kind of see around us all, you know, every day, 
you know, like Bitcoin and cryptocurrency can at times offer the best returns of really any asset class that we've ever really seen in history. And so you look at it, it's like, okay, well, it makes sense why these types of people come in. And it also makes sense why these types of people then leave when the price action goes away. And so it is, you know, although it's a little trite, it is the time to build. And so it's also the time to learn. And it's the time to recognize that this cycle of highs and lows and highs and lows is in fact a cycle. And the first time or the first two times, the first three times, you know, depending on how long it takes you to go, you go through it. That's a really disorienting, you know, terrifying thing. And, you know, after you've been through it enough times, it just kind of becomes old hat, right? Like it's, it's not that big a deal. One of the things I've been kind of most interested here actually, and I'm very happy to see it, it kind of manifest in real life, is actually the Desk Rewards Coin program. Mm -hmm. I have long been an advocate of tokenized rewards programs going all the way back to 2014 when I launched, I believe, the very first one uh, in LTB coin on the LTB network. And it's really exciting to see it deployed in such a large scale, in such a physical environment, right? And, and again, like I think that these types of tokenized incentivization programs are going to be really, really big. Just back up a little bit and yeah. explain what it is. Basically what this is, is like it's a gamification of participation at the conference, right? So you can go on quests where you, you know, you find QR codes around and you scan the QR codes and then you get some desk coin, which of course is the inverse of coin desk is a little bit of a joke. But in addition, it's got the gamification part, and then you've got the marketplace part, and you've got the ability for um, you know for people to then redeem those tokens for swag. And again, now with the popularization of NFTs, um, you know, like suddenly there's this thing that doesn't require physical, you know, real-world manifestation in order to in order to redeem these things. You can actually get them for NFTs or swag or kind of other things like that. So, you know, it's really cool. Again, in the very early days when I was working on projects like this, there was no infrastructure that existed in order to do it. And so, again, now that's just not the case. Now something like this is eminently possible and deployable, again, at scale in ways that are really accessible to people even who are new. So it's, again, it's, it's very exciting to see you know, that was in 2014. We're now having this conversation in 2022. It's only been eight years. And I think that, you know, by the time we get another eight years out, we're going to see these things in a really kind of pervasive way. Not everywhere, but in many, many, many places. And I've been looking very deeply into desk token. And I've been I've been told by our legal counsel or those who are telling who heard from legal counsel that we should refer to it as a token, not a coin. <laughs> Regardless, I've heard that it's going to go beyond just this conference. This is having a massive launch to 15,000 attendees right here at Consensus 2022. 16,000, I think. 16,000. Well, thousands and thousands of people, and they're all getting airdrops of this token that will be going forward a way to engage with the Coindesk brand. And that's a really exciting opportunity for, in the words of Luke, uh, who helped us develop Desk Token, uh, a way for us to eat our own dog food, right? We're writing about these technologies. We're looking into these services. And now we get an opportunity to experiment with it. And that's the most... Can I, can I say what thing. I'm really excited about? I mean, I think there's a definite opportunity for a brand like Coindesk to build participation in the community of people at a conference like this or, or normally with our readers and, and viewers and listeners. But it's also about a way of actually moving power, not just from the brand to the uh, public and, and vice versa, but also to actually encourage the community itself to play with this 
model and do its own thing. And that, that should be really the, the idea of Web3. It's not about us telling people what to do or them giving something back to us. It's about the community doing something together and iterating on what we have. And, and you know, down the line, you could imagine a brand like Coindesk even sort of allowing sort of forks of kind of activity or sort of fan fiction, if you like, based upon the kind of tools that we kind of issue as a company. Is that, is that a crazy idea, do you think? <laughs> crazy ideas, I got lots of crazy ideas. So uh, again, so like back in 2014 when I was setting this stuff up, I issued podcaster tokens, editor tokens, writer tokens, and created a system that I called Roll Coins, right? That basically made it so you could create a market value for access to these types of systems such that if a person no longer wanted to, for example, produce a podcast that was being published by the network that I ran, then they could sell the token. Because otherwise what you would sometimes see is people would just sort of slowly drop off and become less and less interested, and there was no reason for them to actually end it, right? Whereas here, somebody else wanted the opportunity, there's a market value for them being able to take that opportunity, you can effectively let the free market decide. So there are all kinds of crazy, crazy things that are possible with these types of tokenized systems. And really just the question comes down to, you know, what are the fundamentals of your particular situation? What is it that you're trying to accomplish, right? And I think for an organization like Coindesk, again, like Coindesk is a traditional journalism company, basically. As a result of that, it has a slightly different balance than kind of what I was doing, but you take those ideas and you figure out how they fit into this particular situation. And yeah, I mean, like we don't know what's going to work. We don't know what's going to be popular and we don't know what's going to suddenly implode in a fiery crash as it goes <laughs> off of the cliff because all of those things can happen. But it's kind of the, the exploring and the experimenting and the finding out that is the fun part about this stuff. And that's, again, why it's so fun to see this deployed at such scale here. Yeah, and from an, a reader engagement perspective, just here at the conference, really all you can do with Desk Token is get swag and buy food. But going forward, we might be able to see voting, not on the things that we're covering, but perhaps- People are gonna on, vote on your articles? <laughs> well, I hope not, then I might get kicked out of here. But there have been ideas internally about re-enabling comments and people can stake their desk token yes. and as long as they're abiding by the uh, rules such as no cursing or slandering people, then their desk token stakes will be preserved. But if they break it, then it gets slashed. That's a really cool way of having people you know, put some skin in the game uh, with the desk token. Well, and you, I mean, again, I apologize for constantly referencing back to, to kind of the old days, but so we had a system that was actually very similar to that, and basically what it, what it had you do was everybody who, uh, there were multiple ways that you could earn these rewards tokens, right? And so this is something I've actually tried to get Coindesk to do, and I, I hope that I can eventually kind of make it happen, but you take that type of system with the commenting or with forums or with stuff like that, and basically you can set it up such that you have a trailing period after a person does something, right? Where if you may, if, it, if the comment survives or the post survives and isn't moderated out by that point, then you participate in the reward side. But everybody pays one or two of the tokens, get very, very small amounts. And so you wind up having the people who are actually spamming or who are being bad actors, They're, they forfeit their coins and then they wind up subsidizing everybody else throughout the entire thing. So again, like you can, you can set these systems up in all kinds of different ways. And that again, like, the incentivization that's possible once you gamify these things, especially as you you know have larger organizations doing it, especially as you have deeper sort of complexity within the system and deeper potential there, you know, or even market value for these tokens potentially. Again, like all of those things add up to, to suggest that these are powerful forces where we can take 
you know, market kind of actions and market judgments, and we can then put them into systems that typically require a lot of kind of manual, you know, paid labor to do, and you can effectively engage the community to do it for you because it's in their own best interest to do it. And that's something, that's a dynamic that, again, like, isn't specific to journalism. That's something that can be applied really broadly to businesses as a, as a whole. It's very exciting to see Web3 really taking shape here because we talked yeah. about all these ideas for many, many years and uh, here we are seeing it writ large on the uh, big extensive uh, expo floor here. So uh, I'm going to talk about one of my highlights of uh, the conference so far and maybe this is I'm a little bit wary bringing up this topic because Adam here is a big Bitcoiner and this is very much kind of blockchain, not Bitcoin, but anyway. So Jonathan Doten is uh, the co-founder of um, the Starling Lab, which is at uh, USC and uh, Stanford. And they're doing incredibly important work in the country of Ukraine, documenting uh, war crimes using the Filecoin blockchain. And the big news he had yesterday on our Big Ideas stage, which I was managing, was that the International Criminal Court in The Hague is now going to allow evidence that has been stored and preserved and hashed on on this blockchain to be submitted, submitted to the prosecutorial process. So that's kind of a big deal for that project. And he gave a very moving talk um, on the stage yesterday uh, about three schools in Kharkiv that had been bombed out by these <laughs> Russian people um, and um, how it had been documented on this, on this project and how it was now going to be uh, admitted to, the, uh, to this court uh, system. So I thought that was a very exciting and very uh, interesting kind of um, use case uh, of kind of NFTs and the, of this, this uh, Filecoin system, which is a kind of permanent or as permanent as you can get a kind of system for recording evidence uh, at long term. So the system that they're going to be using is just a way to preserve the different war crimes. And then I guess they, they didn't do it necessarily with the intention of it going to court. But obviously that happening is a huge validation for this. What he was saying yesterday was one interesting thing he was saying in Syria, where they, they tested this system as well, there was more footage uploaded to YouTube, more hours of footage uplo uploaded to YouTube of that conflict than there were hours of conflict. I.e., there's no shortage of footage available. There's no shortage of kind of information and uh, content about these uh, horrific circumstances. What we are short of is a kind of this verifiable layer yeah. to kind of say what is real and not real. Because there's so much, so many uh, malicious and bad actors from Russia to, you know, others uh, that are going on uh, channels like that. And uh, what was once the, this kind of dream of Web2 that, that it was going to kind of enable and empower everybody has kind of been polluted by these bad actors kind of issuing misinformation. And this is kind of a way of kind of using Web3 to kind of verify what is true and what is not true. And that's kind of a very powerful concept. I mean, I think the first time that we saw this type of concept in actual action in a national setting would have been when um, the Chinese court system uh, put in place a blockchain solution for, I believe it was copyright infringement. And the basic thinking was this, that in order to uh, you know, effectively prosecute some type of copyright violation that happens on the internet, you basically need to be able to prove that a certain thing happened on a certain date, right? And if you just take a screenshot of something, that's actually insufficient because, of course, that can be faked. And so you can use a blockchain not to, not to validate the data, but to validate that certain data existed at certain times, which could not then be kind of backfed into the system and which also couldn't later be denied. And the other thing is that there are, again, like it's not that 
that wasn't possible. It's that the cost of doing that, the cost of hiring a notary or the cost of, you know, again, going through kind of the legal system to do it is prohibitive, especially in China where the value of these infringements is actually significantly lower than the cost of prosecution. And this is not a problem that's unique to China, of course. This is, this is pretty perpetual across all of the spaces, uh, you know, as it goes. So that's, I, I, again, like, I think that, that we should just be cognizant of that, is that the advantage that these blockchains bring is they provide decentralization such that stuff can't be taken down, yep. and they provide uh, proof of existence at a certain point in time, but the validity of what it is that they are proving existed, that's still entirely up for debate. And it's another reason why connecting blockchains to real world stuff you always have this point of failure, which is who is putting the information onto the blockchain and is it real at the time that it goes in? Well, they have a very kind of um, developed uh, process for putting the stuff on the, on, on the blockchain ah. in the first place. So uh, I, I won't go into all the kind of steps involved there, yeah. but it's uh, kind of a... But um, isn't there a bit of an oxymoron with you know, a government blockchain, right? Doesn't that, the, the fact of it being a government maintaining and originating the system why would they need so a blockchain? Where's the, where's the government? Well, if it's a Chinese government blockchain. I mean, if well, it's a Chinese in that case, it was. In that case, it was. Yeah. 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 Well, and I, I'm not actually sure if it was a Chinese government blockchain. It was a blockchain that was recognized by the legal system as another source of proof, in all you know, as opposed to only having like a notarized system, right? It is a good point. Like one thing that uh, governments and blockchains actually would make sense for is a blockchain that is utilized by multiple governments, right? Because again, uh, blockchains being fundamentally neutral, assuming that you do them the right way, that makes it so that you can have these systems that have validity in multiple jurisdictions where no jurisdiction can exert undue influence over it and as a result make it unpalatable for others. And so that's, again, like that's how you wind up with all these kind of walled garden systems out there is that everybody wants to be in control. But sometimes there's something to be said for nobody being in control and thus creating a level playing field for everyone. Could have a UN blockchain. I mean, again, like there's an. I think there's an argument for taking a lot of these kind of supranational systems and turning them into highly transparent, you know, supranational, uh, you know, like blockchain networks that take keep a lot of the organizational components, but which result and there's Nolan Bowerly, but that keep, uh, you know, like a lot of the, the advantages that that kind of come with that. Good, good, good. Uh, so Adam, give us a quick fire round here. Uh, give us uh, one thing that has kind of really annoyed you about this week and uh, one thing that has excited and delighted you. Hard questions. To be perfectly honest with you, I came here assuming that I was going to be very, very uncomfortable given the heat that everybody was talking about. And in practice, that has not happened. And so I was quite happy about that. Um, one thing that I've uh, really enjoyed, you know, I'm, I'm actually really looking forward to a panel that I have coming up later today with Charlie Schramm, uh, the original creator of BitInstant, and I believe he's the first person ever to go to jail for Bitcoin-related stuff, <laughs> although he's come back from it nicely and parlayed it into some significant advantages for himself. Uh, Jared Kenna, the creator of uh, Trade Hill, uh, which was the sort of U.S. alternative to Mt. Gox at the time that it was collapsing until suddenly it was shut down as far as banking access is concerned. And Jonathan Mohan, who was the creator of the first uh, Bitcoin meetup in New York and ran that for about four years, now an executive at a publicly traded blockchain mining company. So that should be a lot of fun. We're talking about the uh, sort of commercial origins of Bitcoin in a retrospective fashion, right? And so again, just like people talk about how a year in Bitcoin equals a lot of years in real life. And that is what it indeed feels like, is that the kind of distance that we've come in just the last you know, half dozen years is so significant that, again, we've gone from like literal 
Steve Jobs in his, you know, garage to like Steve Jobs at like the height of his career, right? You know, publicly traded companies and stuff like that. So that's kind of that's kind of what I see when I look at this stuff. So I'm excited to have that conversation. Any? Yeah, for me, I'll provide just some moments in time from the conference floor itself. I was appalled by the antics that some of our attendees had in trying to get themselves to the front of the swag lines, the various swag lines. Uh, you know, they just really had no patience whatsoever. And they were telling other people to shove off just so they could make sure they got their MetaMask socks first. Uh, and another moment, sorry, another moment that stood out to me just walking around is once upon a time I saw Gary Kasparov. He was playing chess against five people at once, and I was not expecting to run across a chess master on the floor of our conference hall. There he was, just murdering five hapless souls there was, in there quick was, succession. There was one Indian kid, I think, who lasted about 25 minutes with him. So that There was, was there was. But once once uh, he, he, quick, he made quick work of them all once uh, that one was uh, bested. Good, good, good. Okay, so I think we're going to wrap this up. And uh, so thanks very much, Adam and Levine. Uh, it's great to see you again. And uh, we miss you dearly. Danny Nelson, uh, happy birthday. Thank Wel you. Welcome to your 21st year. And <laughs> you don't look a day over 19. Sounds honestly. like I've got to go pick up some MetaMask socks. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so uh, we're going to wrap up this special edition of the Opinionated Coindesk podcast. And I'm Ben Schiller, Features Editor here. And thanks very much for listening. Goodbye. You've been listening to Opinionated with Ben Schiller, Danny Nelson, and guest host Adam B. Levine at Consensus 2022 in Austin, Texas. The show has been produced by Michelle Mousseau with additional production support from Eleanor Paul and editing by Mike McCarthy. Our theme song is by Ellison. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Please reach out to us at podcasts at coindesk.com, subject line, Opinionated or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening.